the book of Exodus has always been a, a revolutionary book. Uh, in fact, if you know anything of English history, it has massively shaped our history as a nation. In the English Civil War, for instance, in the 17th century, it was the book of Exodus which shaped the self-understanding of the parliamentarians. They believed they were participating in a new exodus, a new work of God, setting um, God's people free. They were marching to freedom from tyranny and bondage with the God of the exodus as their leaders. John John Owen, who was a spiritual leader of the parliamentarians and uh, for a time was vice-chancellor of a small university down the road, Um, from here, said the great discovery of these days is the overthrow of spiritual and civil slavery. And and then again, in the the late 18th and early 19th centuries, it it was this book of Exodus that campaigners against the slave trade turned to. Their leaflets used quotes from the book, such as, I have heard their cry, let my people go. At the same time, in the, in the plantations of the Caribbean and uh, um, mainland America, Exodus was the book of the black slaves. Indeed, um, the tradition of reading uh, uh, Exodus as a formative book is found in black uh, American churches even today. Martin Luther King used Exodus imagery extensively in his sermons as he campaigned for civil rights in the 50s and 60s. On the night before he was assassinated, King um, uh, made his last public speech and the last words of that speech were, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. It's better with a black American lilt, I'm sorry. But I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The the God of the Exodus was his God. The God that he was convinced would set his people free. And some, is, some historians have suggested that actually Exodus just gets sort of hijacked on the back of a movement that was happening anyway. But I don't believe that. I don't believe history supports that. Actually, a careful reading of history suggests that, that the book of Exodus has created so many great movements of history. Take, for example... As one example, the the, uh, abolition of the slave trade that I I mentioned earlier. Um, No other culture in history has abandoned slavery before actually it was people who read their Bibles who led the way to that, who who read the book of Exodus. Exodus creates history, creates so many good things that we have seen in our culture. So I'm, I'm massively excited about uh, reading this book with you this autumn. Who knows what God might do amongst us as we study his word. It shapes cultures, it shapes movements, actually it shapes people as well. 
The great father of the church, Augustine, in the 5th century, referred again and again to the God he adored as the God who declares himself as I am who I am, which is straight from the book of Exodus. He loved God's self-description as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and so on. Exodus 34. Changed his life. It's the same for Martin Luther at the Reformation. No. Studying this book, learning about the God of the Exodus, changes people too. And that very much fits, actually, with how the rest of the Bible uses the book of Exodus. You see, the, the deliverance from slavery in Egypt that is, achieved, that is recorded in the book of Exodus becomes, becomes paradigmatic, becomes, becomes a pattern for the way that the Bible writers again and again say God, God works habitually almost. The prophets in the Old Testament um, saw a future great work of God in terms of a new exodus, a new setting of people free. This time not just from earthly tyranny, but from tyranny of sin and judgment. And marching them not so much to the, to the promised land as in fact to a new heaven and a new earth. And it is that prophetic vision of a new exodus that the Gospels take up and they declare Jesus is the fulfilment of that hope. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 um, announced his ministry in these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It is full of Exodus overtones, that. Jesus came to set people free in the same way that God came to set these slaves free in Exodus, but now more profoundly. And uh, the New Testament describes the church, God's people in every age, as Exodus people. People who have been set free from the tyranny of sin and judgment and even of death. And they are now marching with the risen Lord Jesus towards a new creation. So it's some of those overtones that we need to have in our minds as we start to study this book of Exodus. But Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 finds us in a, in a very different place to where God's people will be at the end of the book. Chapters 1 and 2 describe Israel still in slavery under the power of Pharaoh. It awaits chapter 3 before God is going to step in in a decisive way. And in some ways, New Testament uh, uh, writers and, 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 and uh, um, uh, church leaders have said that is very analogous to the way that the place the church often finds itself in, in cultures. It's very analogous to our moment. When God at the moment is not um, revealing himself in great power 
and doing incredible miraculous things. That's the, that's the state of the, the church in Britain at the moment. It is not growing much, a little bit. And that may be actually your personal state, your heart, where you feel God is not really revealing himself in power. Well, Exodus 1 and 2 has something to say to people in that situation. It answers, or, 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 or uh, um, gives two answers to people in that situation. One of them is, well, God is still there. And the other is, God still uses people who fear him in such moments. So that's where we're going to start this week. Before, uh, for a couple of weeks, Dan is going to uh, take us through some chapters and then I'm going to come back and we're going to see how God um, visited his people in power. But we're going to start here with Israel in slavery in Egypt. And uh, Daniel introduced us to that by reading Exodus chapter 1, um, introduced us to a nation which has forgotten God the nation of Egypt. A previous era, we learned, has come to an end. Verse 6, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. If you read the book of Genesis, it's a wonderful story of Joseph um, um, actually initially being sold into slavery in Egypt, but, but being set free and blessing the nation of Egypt. They had every reason to feel blessed by Joseph's family. But a new pharaoh has come to power, verse 8. A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Very, very akin to our era, in fact. I mentioned a bit of history earlier because I'm convinced that largely we've forgotten it, for instance. Melvin Bragg, I was mentioning a number of weeks ago, some people might remember, has written a book entitled The Book of Books where he, he bewails the fact that we've forgotten the massive positive influence that the Bible has had on British culture. We are a nation of amnesiacs. And uh, actually, that goes right to the, to, to the top. I was talking uh, not so long ago to a former cabinet minister and trying to explain to him how traditions such as toleration of minorities had, had, was the fruit, in fact, of deep reflection on scripture over hundreds of years in this country. And he not only professed not to know it, he professed not to be interested in it, and yet he was the very one who was voting for um, a laws in Parliament which would lose that toleration. We have forgotten the massive amount that this country owes to the Bible. Just as Egypt had. Just as Pharaoh had. And look what happens when that happens. See, see how Pharaoh then begins to treat people of faith. He is threatened, verse 9, by their tenacious survival. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Notice solution is, is public propaganda. He addresses his people publicly. 
And he uses very clever language, verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more, more numerous. Shrewd it sounds relatively benign sort of word. And it was. But of course, it, dis- it disguised nasty oppression that he was planning. He's cloaking wickedness here in innocuous language. Note also that he appeals very much to their fear. Verse 10, let's do sh- deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Fear is a great motivator to get people uh, stirred up. Another one actually is greed. They might fight against us and leave the country. Here are the slaves who are perhaps threatening to leave and therefore they lose all their workforce. Now he knows how to manipulate a population, does this Pharaoh. Fear and greed is used to manipulate us as well so often. If you reform the banks then um, uh, the nation will spiral down into financial crisis and all the bankers will leave this country. Fear and greed. It's always there. But in Pharaoh's case, he uses these techniques to to, um, stir people up to be oppressors. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. A nation forgets. A nation becomes threatened and manipulated by people of faith, uh, by, by, by Pharaoh against people of faith. A nation resorts to increasing pressure on those people of faith. It has happened again and again in history and um, most people agree it is happening today. Normal rights are being eroded, ill-founded fears are being promulgated, Christians don't um, have the freedoms that they once had and the Bible says that is what Christians should expect. That is our normal relationship with the world around. It's only occasionally that nations really remember the living God. Most of the time, like Egypt, they are nations who forget the living God. But here's the other thing that Exodus 1 demonstrates to us. God has not forgotten his promises. In precisely that environment, we find something very interesting happening. Verse 7, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. It echoes, actually, words in uh, in Genesis chapter 1. A mandate to human beings to multiply and fill the earth. And here they are doing it, fulfilling that mandate. More more than that, it alludes back to Genesis 17, where God God transposes now that creation mandate onto Abraham as a promise, saying to Abraham that your family will multiply and be fruitful and be exceedingly numerous, indeed as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand 
on the, on the seashore. And here it is happening, starting. God has not forgotten his mandate and he has forgot, not forgotten his promise. God is, God, is, God is actively at work here, even when he is largely forgotten. Verse 12 as well. Um, uh, in, the, in the situation of oppression, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. But that doesn't make it any easier for them, it makes it worse. The dread of them spread as well, it says. All of my Christian life, I have been being warned by other people that it's going to get more difficult. And by and large, it has been. And by and large, that is the Exodus pattern. We need believers who can live in that environment. Who can survive. Who can even thrive in that environment. There is a God who has not forgotten his promises. And he has mandated and promised his people that they will multiply and they will fill the earth. And he is still at work here as much as he has been at any other part of history. And it is tough. Let me remind you, it could be an enormous amount tougher. Go and talk to Christians in China, go and talk to Christians in the Muslim world, go and talk to Christians um, uh, in all sorts of different situations, you will see it much, much tougher. Tough and difficult is the norm. God has not forgotten. He is there. And here we are um, with a third important thing to notice. Okay? This is a nation that has forgotten, but a God who has not forgotten his promises. And we're dealing with a God who uses resourceful people who fear him. That seems to be the main point of the three stories that follow, the first of which Daniel read, of people who, um, one way or another, cock a snook at Egypt. The first is these resourceful midwives. In some senses, they are completely powerless. They, they, they can't do much. They have no force of arms or whatever. But they are shrewd. They are more shrewd than Pharaoh. And so they not only refuse to kill boys, as uh, Pharaoh asks them to, they, they uh, manage to cook up a cock and bull story about um, the, the vigour of Israelite women to, to cover their tracks. Some people have agonised over, I don't think they were vigorous by the way, just in case you're thinking I'm being unkind, don't think anybody thinks they were, um, They, ma- they, 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 uh, they, they managed to do that. Some people have agonised over that. Some people have said, they lied, that's terrible. And it's absolutely true that, as a general principle, Christians sh- should not lie. But this is the saving of lives. And uh, uh, there are higher priorities amongst God's people than always telling the truth. 
the story uh, makes it very plain that um, God approves of this. Verse 17, we see that they were motivated by the fear of God. The midwives, however, feared God and did not want to do what the king of Egypt had told them to do and they let the boys live. And then we see in verse 20 that God is kind to them precisely because of that. God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Indeed, they are named in the story, which seems to be a sort of a little act of honouring them in the story itself. Here's some resourceful women who fear God and they will not bow the knee to Pharaoh's commands. A time when God is less powerfully evident in a culture. We need people like that. And then there's a story that we can only rehearse, not not read in in, uh, uh, chapter 2. This time of Moses, his mother. She too is resourceful. resourceful. She wants to save the child's life. She makes a basket um, uh, that, is, that is waterproof and she places him in the reeds at the side of the river. She knows perfectly well that Pharaoh's daughter comes down there regularly to, uh, uh, to bathe. And she's got a plan. Another family member, um, when Pharaoh's daughter spots the baby, pops up and uh, suggests that Moses' mum should become a nursemaid. So Moses is cared for and his life is saved until he's taken into the royal court. Another resourceful woman, a woman who made a plan, who feared God and God looked after her. But then we get Moses himself. Very interesting how that story follows on immediately afterwards. Because here is a man now perfectly situated to rescue his people. He has been raised in Pharaoh's palace. He knows how the Egyptians function. And he has a real heart for his own people, the Israelites. When he sees some of his own people being uh, mistreated, we read that he kills the Egyptian who was mistreating the Israelite in verse 13 of chapter 2. He um, uh, evidently feels pretty shifty, looking this way and that, we see in in verse 12, seeing that no one was there, he kills the the Egyptian. Um, And he feels that this makes him the leader of Israel. Well, Israel doesn't think the same. And when he tries to uh, settle a dispute between um, a couple of Israelites, they make it very plain. Who made you, verse 14, ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And here we see how fragile at this point Moses' grip is. He runs away. What, 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 are we, what are we being taught here by these three stories? I think we're being taught that God does use resourceful people, he does use people who fear him, but those people need to be very careful not to overstep the mark. It will take years 
and a personal visitation from God in the burning bush before Moses is properly equipped to lead his people. And in the meantime, actually he has overstepped the mark in his vain effort to lead. Imagine how that applies to us here. I think it says some important things that we need to uh, grasp as we think about our new uh, um, vision statement that Martin was um, uh, putting before you. We live in a time that is difficult but God has not forgotten his promises. Where we can expect God to be growing his church. It is a legitimate expectation. We need to be tough, spiritually resilient as we live in a world that is hostile to God. But we do not need to be downhearted. We live in a time as well where shrewdness alongside God-fearing is a pretty valuable asset. I hope that we as elders have been God-fearing as we have um, uh, considered the the vision that we want to to set before you. It it certainly has felt like it. But uh, I think I would also say we're trying to be be reasonably shrewd. We're trying to make sensible plans which would uh, uh, enable this church to be an established hub for mission and ministry for generations to come and and a building is a central uh, uh, element of that. I I hope we've been reasonably shrewd in recognising that no individual church can reach the incredible diversity that there is in East Oxford and therefore another element of our vision has to be to be church planting. It has always been there on the horizon, it's come closer. Um, We need that kind of wisdom. But we must be careful as well that the the game changer in Exodus, as Dan is going to show us in a, in a, uh, a couple of weeks, the game changer is people personally coming to know the living God. We must be careful not to run ahead of the work that God is doing. We must not be like Moses in Exodus chapter 2. And that is where an element of prayerfulness and an element element of seeking the Lord to go ahead of us and open doors is going to be vitally important. But make no mistake about it. In environments such as we find in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, God does come down and God does visit his people. We will see um, next time that the people's situation becomes more and more desperate and they cry out to God and God hears their prayer. God says, I have come down. And he does that for, for churches, for cultures, for 
for individuals. I think it was probably 30 years ago when I first heard the book of Exodus being preached. And it has stayed with me for all of that time. Because as I heard it preached, I knew the living God was speaking to me. And that set me as a young man on a path that I never turned back from, that I've never regretted. We live in difficult times. But this is a great, life-changing book. Because when you get to know the God of the Exodus, nothing is the same ever again. Let's pray.